welcome to another episode of Soul Care with me, Angie Fatal. This episode is from that brief break I took between season one and season two. And I took that break in order for me to do some interviews that I had been really excited about. And this is one of those interviews. This is my interview with Karen Hickson. She is a licensed clinical therapist. She's an activist, she's a radical, and little did we know at the time, I mean, we knew that the interview would be timely because, you know, people's mental health is always timely and it's always at risk, especially, I would say, in the United States. I can't speak for other countries, but there's always some sort of mental health help that's on the chopping block. And so it's always timely. Little did we know how timely it would be to the current situation we are facing as not only people from the United States, but the world and what this Corona virus is doing to our present mental health, people that are vulnerable, and what will happen to our mental health in the future because of this. So I hope you enjoy. I enjoyed listening to it, and I think you will too. Thank you for listening. Take care. Okay, I guess we're starting. <laughs> Hello. Okay. Hello. So I am here with, I would call us friends, but we don't know each other that well. Yeah, we're like community yeah. Yeah. pals. We know, we know yeah. of each other's work. We've met each other on some protests and some fundraisers, but I'm here with Karen Hickson. Um, I'm going to let you introduce yourself because, I mean, I know you from different things, mm-hmm. protests, mm-hmm. the... Um, Empty bowls mm-hmm. for PDX Alliance for Self Care, yeah. which if you want to go back and listen to that podcast with Tamia, I highly recommend it, people. Um, but I'm going to let Karen introduce. Yeah, I'm Karen Hickson, like Angie said, and I'm a licensed professional counselor in Portland, Oregon. So that's my sort of official work life is counseling in private practice. Um, I've been a counselor for 18 years. And uh, that is way real. That you don't look old enough to have been a counselor for 18 years. <laughs> you know, years. That's, that's been an interesting part of my career is like how I'm perceived, you know, uh-huh. um, as a sort of, uh, we can talk more about that. But depending on, you know, I'm still a punk. I still wear band t-shirts and political yeah. t-shirts and my vans. You're wearing Respect Indigenous Uprising. <laughs> I was like, oh, I want to get that one. <laughs> so, um so we know each other from the activist community. Mm-hmm. So that's there's another piece of my life that kind of connects with all sorts of activism, and particularly activism with other mental health counselors and social workers. And in 2016, after the election happened, mm-hmm. um, I decided, well, we got to do something as mental health providers. Um, yeah. We need to be organizing together and talking about the emotional impact of what's going on in the world with regards to not just Trump's election, but everything that even occurred before that. Mm -hmm. Um, 
you know, white supremacy, the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, everything that's going on in the world, capitalism, you know, all mm-hmm. of it, all the isms and phobias are so related to people's mental health. Yeah. And so there's really no way to do this work without considering the political context that we're all in. So I got together a group of 50 or 60 counselors in December of 2016, and we started organizing together. And at that point, we were called Mental Health, Mental Health Providers Unite. And we changed our name last year to Empathy Riot because we felt like it more um, just described a little bit more of our like radical nature. Plus, it's easier to say. It's easier to say. I would always go, what are they called again? <laughs> but I would end up just describing what you do and not naming exactly. it I couldn't remember what well, it was Well, and we also sound, there's a lot of union activity going on in the mental health field in Portland, too. Yeah. And we didn't want to confuse ourselves with that work, too. So it was just easier. But what we ended up doing was mostly gathering together a small group of us and showing up at protests and actions to do emotional support for people who were showing up at protests, showing up in the streets. Um, People get activated during that process, Mm -hmm. triggered. um, You know, shit goes down in the streets that's traumatizing um, in and of itself. And so Empathy Riot um, organized with other, like, local mental health providers to show up at different protests um, over the last few years. And we also started a provider support group because we realized Mm -hmm. that all of us... Yes. are really struggling with the work that we do. Yeah, like um, empathy fatigue or... Yeah, what you, so many different concepts, yeah. right? Like vicarious trauma, compassion yeah. fatigue, yeah. Um, struggles in the workplace, you know, dealing with what is it like to be a master's level counselor coming out of school with 70000 to $100,000 yeah. worth of debt and trying to work and in community... practice too. Right, and working in community mental health, mm-hmm. um, which is where I started out working. Tell me, okay, we're gonna. I, I want to ask a question. Sure. What What's your definition of community mental health? Because people may not know what that is. Yeah, I guess I would say that our our system is a little bit two tiered in the United mm-hmm. States regarding how we um, provide mental health care. Mm-hmm. And community mental health care is provided through these larger agency nonprofits um, in Portland. Let's say LifeWorks, Northwest, and Cascadia. Oh, yeah. Okay. And so they um, are these larger agencies providing care, and they tend to provide care to the Medicaid population. And that, that was, that's become a huge population since the Affordable mm-hmm. Care Act, um, which has allowed a lot of people to get on Medicaid yeah. who couldn't and didn't have any insurance before, therefore no access to mental health care yeah. at all. And the other tier to our system is, is the private practice market. So okay. folks who, um, like me, decided... There was no way for them to sustain work in community mental health for a bunch of reasons, which we may or yeah. may not get into. And we opened up our own, put up a shingle, open up our own space. <laughs> Five and <cents>. Right. <laughs> Lucy Booth everywhere. Yeah. And we um, provide care either through, you know, sliding scale, self-pay, or insurance mm-hmm. if we're licensed and we decide to take insurance. And that's a whole challenge, too. Yeah. Um, and, you know, typically most people will tell you that the care that is provided in private practice is of a higher caliber than is able to be provided by community mm-hmm. mental health systems because they have so many clients seeking yeah. care. So the, the supervisees I work with, I also do supervision for folks who are trying to get their licenses. They might have caseloads of 120 people. 
So yeah. therefore they can't see their clients weekly. And that's, yeah. that's a typical model. Andy yeah. is like weekly psychotherapy, right? Like yeah. an hour a week is the typical model. It's the dream. It's the dream, right? <laughs> yeah. It's, um, it's what I try to do for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, part of my own self care, which we might also talk about. Yeah. So, that's what I mean by community health care okay. is care that's provided by these larger agencies and bureaucracies, um, typically relying on a lot of Medicaid funding okay. or state or federal funding of various kinds. Yeah. So. So then you're also then just by its nature you're getting into the problem with systems and structures. And totally, all the things related to like yeah, and, all of it, yeah. all the structural yeah. bureaucratic components that are involved with accessing a system and. You know, right now in Portland, you know, there are a lot of people who aren't able to access care in those yeah. systems. Yeah. There's a wait list. They can't yeah. find someone. They can't get through. Yeah. Um, so access to care is a really big deal in the mm-hmm. mental health system. Yep. And, you know, Oregon has typically done really poorly nationally when it comes to to how well we're doing with mental health. So we're mm-hmm. not a leader by any stretch of the imagination. We're not, I wouldn't say... Um, super innovative you know yeah. we have some some innovative parts of the system like early psychotic psychosis intervention for mm-hmm. for teens and and young adults um but yeah we're we're struggling and I you know worked in community mental health and I worked in a lot of different settings and then I decided okay I'm gonna hang up my own shingle it's 2006 yeah. it's a different Portland <laughs> you know People talk about old Portland. Yeah. That's when oh, I started yeah. my practice is in old Portland. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, I have a wistful look on my face, even though I know there's tons of shit about old oh, Portland course. too. But of course. Old it was Portland. a smaller, more accessible, at least for mm-hmm. white people, Portland. Well, I was able to provide lower fee sliding scale work at yeah. that time. And it was not as um, difficult, you know, because yeah. the cost of living hadn't quite gone up as much. Um so I've been growing, you know, since then, but I, I, I really opened in order to provide like a, a radical approach to mental health. So I yeah. wanted people who wouldn't be, who would be stoked to see someone who looked similar to them. Yeah. Someone who, you know, is casual, who's mm-hmm. authentic, transparent, yeah. no, yeah. no bullshit, you yeah. know, and not trying to create a lot of distance between myself and my clients. Yeah. Because of course we are not much different than our clients. We so are true. we are clients. Yeah, exactly. And if you're not a client and you're providing right that you shouldn't my my theory is you should not be providing care for others if you're not getting care for yourself. Which can also get tricky finding somebody. It is tricky in this community, but um, I'll hold on to my person yeah. for dear life cuz yeah. um but yeah, I think it's important to examine your own stuff. We're a lot, like the way that that has been historically named is wounded healers. Mm-hmm. And um, sort of an older older phrase for that term. Yeah. But I would say that the more modern way to say that is just counselors who have lived experience yeah. of trauma, mental health issues, childhood dysfunction, yeah. eating disorders, etc. And so a lot of us are out here with lived experience mm-hmm. and we have to figure out those boundaries of being a professional yeah. right who you know we have our own stuff going on yeah so and that's not very supported when you're in graduate school for mental health yeah I was going to ask you I mean I don't want to segue too much if, if you're if you want to talk about other things but the first thing I thought about when you said that is 
I'm I'm a spiritual director, so mm-hmm. I had to jump through certain hoops, right. but not nearly as many as you do. Right. And I can blur the lines a little bit more, but mm-hmm. I always say to my clients, I'm not a therapist. Yeah. I can help you find a therapist. I work well in tandem with a the therapist. Anything mm-hmm. I say, take to your therapist, whatever. Um, but so I can be more vulnerable it's Mm -hmm. not necessary I wouldn't say all spiritual directors work that way but that's my practice and I've always gravitated towards therapists that at least tell me a little bit of their story because I need to trust them but that is a very hard Mm -hmm. therapist to find and it seems like it would also be like disregarded in the field yeah to some degree I really appreciate everything you said because I mean, I appreciate the work you do. I sought you out in thinking about uh, a spiritual director for a client who therapy just wasn't doing it for them. Mm -hmm. And I think that my field, which includes counseling, marriage and family therapists, social workers, psychologists, you know, we all have different training, different paradigms, different professional organizations, but essentially we all do similar work. You know, it's, it's tough because you can find good counselors and bad counselors. Yeah. You can find good yeah. spiritual directors and dangerous yeah. spiritual directors. Yeah, oh, for sure. So the field itself doesn't protect consumers, right? Mm-hmm. We're carrying that ethical torch, I think, inside of us mm-hmm. as far as how we want to show up. But graduate school is a tough place. I mean, you can't share too much about your lived yeah. experience. Um, you can't be totally transparent. You know, you'll occasionally find a mentor or... A, a rad professor who will really um, show up for you. But the field has become so professionalized and we've really, you know, got caught in trying to validate and justify our skill set in comparison with someone like psychologists, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I, some, we all question in my field of counselors, like, should we be diagnosing people with the DSM, which is a ridiculous instrument that perhaps will be obsolete in the next 10 years if I had my way. Yeah. And then again, there's so much helpful stuff about certain diagnostic mm-hmm. categories and certain ways that that leads to treatment. So there's just a lot, right? There's yeah. a lot of complexity in everything that we're going to talk about today. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, there's a lot of layers to it. And, um, but I think generally, you know, my goal is to be authentic, real, transparent, and, and, to not just perform a yeah. professional role, yeah, right? Yeah. And to be real, which includes acknowledging my own mess-ups yeah. when I'm working with my clients, yeah. which certainly happens. Yeah, you're a human, so... Yeah, I would, I absolutely. Thank you, that's helpful. So I do want to... I want to go back to... You were talking about creating the... Um, Empathy Riot. Empathy Riot. Yep. Um, and so tell me, like, if you can, you, you're you not alone. You got a group of people together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You went to the protests. What, and you're still doing it. So mm-hmm. what came out of that? Like, mm-hmm. where is where are you with that right now? Yeah. I mean, because we are in a, I feel like I miss every protest at this point. Yeah, something seems to have happened at the Maybe two it's the year algorithm. I don't know. I'll be like, oh, that happened. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I 
feel like things were pretty heated between yeah. December of 2016 and December of 2018, let's yeah. say. Things seem to have calmed down on the streets, if you will, in the mm-hmm. last year plus. But Empathy Riot connects with our community partners, people like Don't Shoot, Critical okay. Resistance, you know, and show up, you know, at their events or their actions. Um, for example, that the recent MLK March mm-hmm. um, that Don't Shoot sponsors every year. Um, folks from Empathy Riot showed up at that. And so there's a group of five of us now that are core organizers. And, you know, we pull in people from the community and invite people from the community, from our counseling community. And we're mostly functioning as peer support for each other, mm-hmm. doing the work we do and doing activism. Um, and so we still do provider support group. Um, we support our partner organizations. You know, we participate with Critical Resistance re- recently in a pod mapping workshop. Mm. So we just pri- try to bring that mental health perspective to the work that we're doing. Yeah. You know, um, and to the work our community partners are doing. And, you know, we've um, supported PDX Alliance for Self-Care and their mm. work. And really, um, there's just so much good work happening in yeah. Portland for sure. And... Um, a lot of our work right now is to just boost that work of other organizations yeah. and make sure that mental health counselors have a presence in political action. Yeah. Like not just as professionals, but, um, but as people, um, I brought activism into my work. So I was already an activist before I trained to be a counselor. Mm-hmm. Um, thank goodness for college. It, yeah. it, pol- it politicizes you, yeah. you know, usually undergraduate college, you know, you, you, you find your paths and you find your, your things you're interested in. So I think the first action I went to was a, a Take Back the Night march when I was a, in my undergraduate. Yeah. And I remember marching through town and campus and the fraternities, you know, screaming at us and calling us names. And we were out there just demonstrating our right to be folks who deserve to not be sexually abused, sexually harassed, mm-hmm. raped, and, um, you know, and, and seeing that, that tension between what it was like to do that, walk through those frat, the frat houses, the frat rows, and have those, you know, words like whore, slut, come right at you while yeah. you're trying to do that work. So that tension happened pretty early in my life, and so um, the streets of Portland are pretty familiar to me as far as protests, and I remember being downtown for the Iraq or the Afghanistan, you know, the push to the Afghanistan war in 2003. I think there were like 35,000 of mm-hmm. us down there and, you know, nothing happened. Yeah. You know, like yeah. that, 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 um, so, I mean, a lot of people have feelings about what protests and what actions yeah. do and don't do, yeah. but, um, a lot of it is making sure that people know that we're not going to be silent about whatever it is that's going on yeah. and that we're not going to comply. Yeah, and I think that's the tricky thing is you do, like, when you show up, there is a sense that you want, obviously, that you want change. Mm-hmm. And especially with those big ones, you're like, yeah. look at all these people, and right. then nothing. But, but it's still, it's not, it is about that and it's not about that. It's about activating. Right. And also standing for all those people that can't show up. Absolutely. It's not safe to show up. It's... Absolutely. And, you know, when the max staffings happened, um, you know, we were we were at the, the actions and the protests up there at the Hollywood Transit Center. And we just, you know, had signs and we said, stop us if you need to talk to a mental health mm-hmm. counselor. Let us know if you need referrals. And, 
you know, the thing is, Angie, a lot of times people are just so grateful that you're there. Yeah. That yeah. like that itself is an inoculation yeah. of some, yeah. of a bit of that activation of yeah. that trauma, you know? And that's yeah. what we've found when we do show up in that way. Yeah. And we're like, hey, I'm a counselor. Do you need anything? They're like, oh my gosh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. you know? I think for me, seeing you guys down there that first time, I was like, well, one, wow. And then all of a sudden I feel, I felt personally as somebody that's benefited has been, yeah. my life has been saved because of therapy. Yes. You know, oh, okay, it's not going to be as bad because at least people can see you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also just, I'm standing here. It's like my friend, do you know Dustin Pattinson? I don't know. He, I'm in an anti-colonial book group with him, but he goes down with, I don't know what the other group is called, that they, they're not the lawyers. Oh, his wife yeah. did that for a while. Mona. Yeah, yeah. The lawyers guild being yeah. there, so I mean, also oh. so because I'm important. like, I'm going to jail. I know nobody is going to get me out because exactly. I don't have any money. Got to have that jail support number <laughs> on your arm. I know. Got to write it on there. But there's another like he was part of a group that just they would stand and watch and then physically get involved if they had to. Right. Just being a legal observer yeah. of some kind. He wasn't the legal observer. Mm-hmm. It was another group that was like, I will physically mm-hmm. get involved with yeah. my body. Yeah. Well, we need a more yeah. community defense, I would yeah. say, with everything that has happened. Yeah. And with the history of white supremacy that occurs in or that has occurred in Oregon and, you know, some of the stressful stuff that's happened over the last few years here yeah. of, you know, our LGBTQ community getting mm-hmm. harassed and harmed and yeah. et cetera. So, um, so yeah, it's it's been great to see what's happened, you know, since the election. Like Snack Block shows up. Mm-hmm. Those are some wonderful pals. So of mine. Snack Block, Snack Block is they actually feed you at mm-hmm. protests. They have yeah. apples and juice boxes and bars. And yeah, whatever. Yeah, there's food. yeah, just, it's amazing. Just like you know, Water. yeah. I mean, I know that I've been on the streets and just not even had enough food for the day or whatever. Yeah. So. And just having the support of groups like that and the medics. And, yeah. you know, there's been lots of yeah. different medic support that's happened over the years, too. And so having all of those pieces aligned, mm-hmm. I think, is super helpful. And, I mean, I think the biggest thing about this connection between mental health and activism is that mental health is really deeply connected to the political and cultural and social context. Yeah. So it's not that you and I show up and we have some sort of individualized depression, let's just say, that is biochemical in nature. We know that that depression is caused by numerous social determinants of health, Mm -hmm. trauma, racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, capitalism, and the stress of living in the world. So for me, um, you know, some of our professional training pushes us to be diagnostic to think of the individual, to think of treatments, to think Mm -hmm. of good evidence-based treatments. And at times forgets the the cultural context of why people are suffering. Yeah. So that's a big piece. So would you, maybe this is too simplistic, but in that case, depression is, in my mind, depression is a symptom. Yes, maybe there's biochemical stuff that contributes sure. to that symptom. Sure. Like somebody may be prone more to anxiety than Absolutely. or whatever. But all of those other things mm-hmm. are like giving it the fire to feed it or whatever. Absolutely. And 
when you were emailing me, you asked about my spiritual practice. Yeah. Which I'm not going to totally jump into, but I think my spiritual practice is relationality and connecting. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of the mental health issues you were just speaking of, depression, anxiety, not only are they culturally or socially mediated, but they're related to alienation, yeah. disconnection. And people are feeling so um, isolated yeah. um, in our society. You know, they're scrolling on their phone and they're not, you know, they're not able to connect meaningfully with people. And so for me, you know, my work, my activism, my life is about good relational practice, like Mm -hmm. making people feel heard, seen, connected, known. Yeah. And trying to be um, extremely radically supportive. Yeah. Because there's a lot of blaming in our culture. You know, and there's a yeah. lot of desire for quick fixes and spiritual bypasses and quick quick cures. Yeah. And um, so I think it's important for us to be political in, mm-hmm. in, our, in our approach to mental health. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, you know, I'm lucky. I, I get to see a lot of clients in this community who were on the same page about what we want for the world, right? Yeah. Um, but I think it's equally as important if someone shows up in your office and they're more conservative and they're, you know, spouting off um, discriminatory concepts at you as the counselor to be able to challenge them. Yeah. And, you know, connect with them, but challenge them. And just as you see the polarization in our society, there's polarization in my field. You know, yeah. like, how, um, how professional should you be? How... Yeah. How open should you be? How political should you be? You yeah. know, I have counselors in my community that believe they, they would never, you know, discuss their political affiliations or or whatever, but, you know, yet I'm out on the streets and I might run into a, count, a client, yeah. you know? Like, yeah. I might be out there on the streets with my clients. And so there are certainly ethical ways to do more radical work. Yeah. Yeah, I think... Um, I, kept, I kept thinking about how many... Um, every time I've seen a therapist and or taken my children to a therapist and there's that clause that says if I see you on the street mm. or whatever I mm-hmm. I won't mm-hmm. acknowledge you yeah <laughs> like I get it but at the same time it's like that's not normal that's not a normal human response so right. is there an in-between yeah <laughs> and there, there is <laughs> there has to be there has to be and I have never um I've never agreed to that with my clients. I mostly say something like, hey, we're in community together. We might end up seeing each other. Yeah, um, especially Portland is so small. It is. I know. It's so strangely <laughs> small. And I, I, I usually say, hey, my inclination would be to just say hi. How does that sound to you? Yeah. Would you prefer that or would you prefer I don't say anything? Yeah. But to not come from that place of, like, I can't acknowledge you. Yeah. Because I think confidentiality and privacy, they're super important concepts, right? Mm-hmm. Like, they're extremely vital to the work we do. But it also amplifies stigmatization. Yeah. Oh, you know? for sure. Yes. And secrecy. Mm-hmm. And us not sharing with each other yeah. what's going on with our mental health. Yeah. So um, I try to be really respectful of my clients. But... Um, I think there are ethical dual relationships that can occur yeah. in our in our work, and um, you know, there's a lot of mythologies about what you should and shouldn't do in our field as professionals, mm-hmm. right? Um, 
but I think there's more room than we give each other credit for. I mean, in my field, a lot of us are policing each other. Yeah. <laughs> you know, someone shows up on a message board and says, can I go to my client's wedding? You know, and people yeah. sort of chime in on all sides. And some people are like, you lose your license. And, and you know, <laughs> I'm chiming in saying, hey, you know, that's, that's a rite of passage yeah. in your client's life. Yeah. And they clearly believe that you are an important part. Did you invite yourself to the wedding? Right. No. Right. 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 Do you want to put some things in place if you're going to show up and you're in a professional role? Sure. You want to have that conversation with your clients. Who do you want me to say I am? Yeah. Or, um, but like, yeah, it's, it's a weird world. It's hard to talk about because I'm like, it's so, it's so its own thing. All Mm -hmm. of our fields. Yeah. They have their own language, their own like principles, practices, ethics, but it's fun to talk about it with yeah. you, actually, because I think about it all the time, and I don't get to talk about it with people outside the field yeah. very much. Well, when you say professional, the thing that I hear is whose standard is the professional. Right. Because that's one thing that I'm exploring in my own life is I was hanging out with some friends, and I was talking about different things that I'm trying to do business-wise mm-hmm. connected to spiritual direction. and. We were talking about retreats, and I've done retreats before, but anyway, to shorten it up, my, my friend Molly was, Angie, you just have to realize you're not a capitalist. And I was like, oh. And then the whole night I'm like, yeah, no shit. And then I was talking to my husband and then a few days later, and I was like, so Molly said this to me, and it's true, I realize that. Right. I mean, I live in a capitalistic system, and I right. apply by a lot of the rules, but then I was like, so I told him, and he said, yeah, and the standards that you're holding yourself to always is the standards within that system. Because that is my, I'm, I'm failing or I'm do, whatever. Not doing good enough. Yeah, by whatever rules are. And, and so I've been thinking about who's decide. So when you said that, that made me think of who's deciding mm-hmm. the professionalism. Yeah. Because... I want to push back on a professionalism that's deciding by the same group that has decided everything mm-hmm. and kept others at bay. Absolutely. Just by those decisions. So Absolutely. In my field in particular, you know, it's steeped in, you know, old white men who, yeah, who created it in the yeah. late 1800s. Yeah. Um, there were some women involved, but very marginalized. And usually men. their husbands claimed their work. <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. So I think when you speak of capitalism and the work that we both do, I think that surviving in either of our fields is really challenging Mm -hmm. um, because we're taking money from suffering people in one way or another. Oh, Right? Yeah. And so there's tension in that, and Mm -hmm. people think that we're supposed to just do it because it's our calling. Yeah. And I think that that has really caused a lot of wonderful people to leave counseling for sure (laughs) because they can't survive um and you know there's just a lot to say about how capitalism mediates this relationship between you know us and our clients and our own survival I mean I have a working class background so for me I um I'm amazed at where I am right now like it's it's I mean clearly there's white privilege in where I am Mm -hmm. at this moment and <clears throat> tons of educational privilege, but um, it has been a hustle, I will tell you, yeah. though. 
to be self-employed for this long, you know, yeah. for 14 or 15 years is a deep hustle. And that is the most honest way yeah. to say it, you yeah. know? Yeah. So, but I feel like, you know, we, we were meeting here at the building that I work in. Yeah, I wanted to. Good, good segue. Good segue. Um, <laughs> at Keystone Commons, which, you know, is a nod. The name of it is a nod to my upbringing in southwestern Pennsylvania. Mm. Um, the Rust Belt, which was a very economically and emotionally depressed place to grow up in southwestern Pennsylvania. Um, and, you know, I've decided like, okay, so this self-employment, I've been so isolated in self-employment as a counselor, right? I sit in a room, I see clients and then I eat my lunch in that same room Yeah. and I'm like, okay, something has to change. So, um, I was able to open up this building, which has seven offices and event space and a group counseling space, which we're sitting in right Mm -hmm. now. It's beautiful. And, uh, to reduce isolation, and to create a stronger sense of community amongst each other. And so I'm completely so grateful to be working here with a lot of my activist comrades or my colleagues um, who are, you know, people who support me immensely and we support each other. But I'm really excited to have this space because hopefully, you know, lots of people have been coming here to do different retreats and anti-racist work and there's been a lot of uh, good things happening already in the last few months. And so I just really, I feel really grateful for where I am. Um, but the work is hard. I'm going to be honest with you. Yeah. Being a mental health counselor is not for the faint of heart. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and self-care practices are tricky, right? Those are also like individualized Yeah. when it comes to like counselors. You know, you're supposed to go take care of yourself by yourself Well. I think here at Keystone, our self-care is like meeting in the kitchen on Mondays and cackling together and yeah. eating snacks and being like, how are you? And how was your weekend? What do you got going on this week? And, and having a bit more camaraderie yeah. to reduce that isolation and, um, you know, have more, um, you know, easeful interaction that is not solely mediated by capitalism. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Because... I think sometimes, for me at least, when I'm spending so much time alone or... Mm-hmm. So I'm either spending time alone trying to make something happen, like mm-hmm. keep what I'm doing going, mm-hmm. or with people, which I I get energized from meeting with people. Mm-hmm. Me too. Um, but then also, everything feels like work. Because most of... For me, it's done mostly out of my house or I go meet with people who want to, you know walk and talk or whatever and so getting around other people and doing things I love like hiking or kayaking or just laughing oh my gosh like telling a dirty joke cackling yes I love to cackle yeah a belly laugh is a good thing yeah my buddy Anna (laughs) recently was was teaching all of us about completing our stress response cycles oh yeah and that is from um the woman who wrote Come As You Are, and she recently wrote Burnout, too, a book about burnout. Nagowski? I, yeah, I love I can't Come remember. As You Are, top yeah. book of my last year. Really amazing book yeah. about sex and sexuality, but she talks a lot about stress in there, yeah. too. And so um, just trying to complete your stress response cycles mm-hmm. is, a, is a big deal as a person. 
and a counselor and an activist and a spiritual director and just trying to keep going. You know, I had so many stress response cycles just last week. You know, last week was Iowa caucus. Last week was the final of the impeachment. Last week was the state of the union. Yeah. A lot of abhorrent things yeah. that occur. The ripping of the paper. Yeah, each week, you know, each week is um, stressful. And, you know, my clients come in and they're stressed about some of yeah. these things. And I think 2020 is going to be an interesting year in general, you yeah. know, because of, um, you know, the election and what's happening. And I think we're all going to have to help each other a lot, you know, yeah, to get through. Yeah. Um, and I've been thinking about that the last couple of days, just like, how are we all going to get through? And, um, yeah. I think also that, that, um, anticipation, I mean, you talk to people in the, you know, the black community who were not surprised at all. Sure. And I've said, I wasn't surprised. I mean, I was surprised, but I also have a negative <laughs> look and I'm like, of course the worst for me when they didn't call him out on the grabbing the pussy because yeah. I grew up in the church and I'm like that's gonna be you mm-hmm. can't mess with somebody's princess or queen mm-hmm. or whatever mm-hmm. that's gonna be the thing and when that didn't happen I was like he's gonna win yeah um so now I think for a lot of people it's sitting in that tension mm-hmm. of the possibilities mm-hmm. we know it's possible and and like we're sitting as close as maybe we can get at this point to where other people have to sit all the time. Yeah. You know, holding that tension of what's going to happen and what do we do when the worst case scenario happens again? I know. It's so tough, Angie, because I, you know, I'm connected to a lot of radical leftists and anarchists and people who don't necessarily believe a lot in electoral politics. Oh, yeah, my friends are like, burn it down. Absolutely, and I, like, agree with (laughs) that. I sort of agree with um, burning it down while uh, hopefully creating some harm reduction in the system because, you know, there are some very specific things that Trump has been able to do that Mm -hmm. are extremely harmful. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking about things that directly impact my clients like food stamps yeah and um what if you know if he decides he's gonna you know encourage a two-year reevaluation for disability benefits um there's a lot of really really horrible things that have happened that are very concrete you know that are very legitimate and yet of course the world wasn't perfect before (laughs) before trump came and um so it's 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 hard, and I find it hard to even talk about some of these things with the presence of social media, right? Yeah. Because everyone has a hot take on everything. Yeah. And I find that incredibly stressful as a counselor, you know? Yeah. I'm struggling with whatever, and I go on social media, and it's like, boom, 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 hot take, hot take, yeah. hot take. This isn't the way you should be thinking about this. This isn't the way you should be thinking about that. And it's it's a stressful kind mm-hmm. of thing. Yeah. Um, it's brought a lot of wonderful information sharing into our lives and obviously made activism very accessible for some people, um, like with Twitter and, and yeah. some, some larger political movements happening. But, um, but it can be stressful. It can be stressful to be um, trying to work both angles, right? Where you want to burn the system down, yeah. you want to dismantle it, you want to fundamentally change things, but you're also watching what the system is doing to people yeah. every day. Yeah. And it is absolutely harmful yeah. um, and I think that you know a lot of 
the work that I do in some of my trainings with fellow counselors is trying to do some anti-racism work, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, how do, how do white practitioners um, pull their shit together to be more responsive to communities that, um, that probably need their services, you know, because yeah. there's just not enough. Yeah. Um, diverse practitioners to meet the needs of all black indigenous POC folks and um, just trying to help people get more um, more aware of of their own of their own shit their own privilege their own ability to harm people Um, and yet I also think we're losing the plot a little bit on how all of this is very systemic do you know, yeah. like all of these structures and institutions and policies that are maintaining um, all of this suffering and all of this stratification in our society. So, yeah, I think that's the that's the scary thing, too, is like when you start to look at it, it's so woven together and then yeah. you're just like, yes, it needs to be burned down. And I and I that scares me. And of course, I'm open, I'm open to that. And the main reason I think it scares me is because whenever you burn something down, there's a vacuum, and the vacuum doesn't affect the wealthy or the privileged. The vacuum affects the people that we're working with. Yeah. And they're the ones that have have carried the weight of suffering. Mm -hmm. And with a vacuum, Mm -hmm. they're going to continue to carry that Mm -hmm. weight. Yeah, I mean, I... Yeah, I just I just finished listening to um, Indigenous People's History of the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, That's such a good book. And you know, you you think about how it's just the roots of our of our nation, right? How yeah. we came to be oh, God. with the sort of <laughs> violence and genocide and racism yeah. and colonization. And you think, how the hell can we change a damn thing when we can't even reckon? with that and we can't reckon with slavery yeah. you know and we can't reckon with how you know capitalism has come to control our political system yeah. and those things are so big like you said yeah. and they're so tight yeah that um it's all overwhelming yeah you know so you know you, you go macro you go big mm-hmm. you go small you try yeah. to help people that are in front of you <laughs> yeah. you know yeah. and you go back and you go forth and you yeah you try to weave it and you try yeah. to do what you can on all the levels, um, you know, to, to be and have an impact yeah. on, on people and um, a positive impact on systems, hopefully, yeah. when you get a chance to. But, um, yeah. I like the macro and micro. Yeah. Just a little moving. nerd out. Yeah. I went and listened to her talk about, I haven't listened to the, was it Shoot? She wrote another book that's on... Um, Ortiz? Yeah. Yeah. She wrote another book that's on the Fifth Amendment. Mm. But she... I, you know, I went up and said thank you or whatever. She, she asked me what I did, and then she gave me her phone number. And it's in my wallet. I'm like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> that was like, total nerd out. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> there are all these people that inspire us, right? Yeah, she's amazing. To keep going, you know? Yeah. And um, also just that that ability to also, like, open your world a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, educate yourself a little bit. Mm-hmm. So I want to be conscious of your time, mm-hmm. and I, but I also want to know what, like, 
do you want to talk more about this? I'm pretty Just, open. Okay. Because I want to know... I think there's... I want to know something, but I also think it could feed into something else. I want to know for a working class, working class girl, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. how did you have the courage or the resilience or, mm-hmm. and still have the mm-hmm. resilience? Cause this isn't paid off where Mm-mm. we're saying to make that leap. Yeah. Because that for me, I am also from that background and, um, mm-hmm. you know, my sister and I are the first in our family to go to school. Same. Yeah. So, you know, that has, <laughs> we looked back and we were like, Oh, Somebody could have taught me how to get money? Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I love that question, actually, Angie. I think it's a good way to, like, end. I'll probably yeah. be a little verbose in my answer. But, Please do. Um, I think that being a counselor for 18 years, I've realized that there's different kinds of trauma, right? Mm-hmm. Obviously. And I grew up in an extremely dysfunctional family, but I have the benefit of my parents loving me in that dysfunction huge huge makes makes a huge Mm -hmm. difference right so whatever might be going on mental health mental illness alcoholism Mm -hmm. domestic violence those were three things that were in my childhood um I always felt loved and it was a sort of like they couldn't teach teach me what to do it was sort of like a you can we know you're smart you can do what you want I had no idea how to do anything um when I left home and went to college and, uh, you know, of course my husband and I are in a ton of student loan debt because that is the state that most folks are in, in this country. Yep. I think it's like $1.6 trillion of student loan debt. That's not even real money. Anymore. I know. No, it doesn't even make sense. Um, so I think I've just, I got, I, I have a ton of privilege by way of, I think feeling loved and feeling mm. like one of the things that had to thrive in my traumatic, um, childhood was social skills. Like, I had to learn how to connect. I had to learn how to get my needs met. I had to learn how to hustle to, you know, be respected Mm -hmm. as a sort of working class white lady. And um, so I've always just had a bit of grittiness, I think, that is just part of it and a ton of privilege, I think, too, with those social skills and... um, with the whiteness that I carry you know and so I think for me the way that I take risks is through I have big ideas right like Mm -hmm. I have visions and dreams and goals and I have things that I want to manifest and so I am able to just slowly and grittily figure out how to do it you know it's like I have my PhD. Yeah, I'm like, please write a book. So well, I, I have my PhD, for example, my PhD. Yeah. And people are like, I never thought I would get my PhD. I did it because I thought I wanted to be a professor in academia yeah. because I did teach at the master's level for a few years. Um, Thank you, doctor. I decided not to do that because I don't feel like that system yeah. is um, a good use of my energy. But I think people are like, how'd you get a PhD? I'm like, straight up tenacity. Yeah. Like, I, my intelligence is not, it's not a huge factor. It's like a lot of just doing one thing, putting mm-hmm. one foot in front of the other. And that's how I opened this building. I got the privilege of meeting some folks who wanted to invest in this with me. And they took a chance on me. They heard my vision. They mm-hmm. took a chance on me. 
So I'm in more debt now, not yeah. just student loan <laughs> debt. But I think that how I did this project was just pure like, okay, what's next? Okay, what's next? Mm-hmm. Okay, how do I learn how to do that? How do I learn to get a grant? How do I learn to get yeah. loans? How do I learn to have investment partners? How yeah. do I learn to renovate a building? How do I learn to be a, a, a quote-unquote landlord, which yeah. is like, you know, yeah. not an ideal term. But um, it's just sort of like not being afraid to like learn, to push, to ask questions. Yeah. To fight your way through, um, I you know I, I think about it a lot. Like, how did I get where I am? I think it's just it's also just it takes some it takes some luck and it takes a lot of social networking too. Like the people you know lift you mm-hmm. up and support you and yeah. push you and and help you grow. And they hear your dreams and they say that's a, that's something that could happen. You know, this yeah. space is a dream that came out of conversations with my empathy riot comrades, my fellow organizers, where yeah. we were like, what if we had a space? And it's like, what if we did, you know, and, um, and now we do. And so yeah. like, it's, it's pretty amazing. So I don't know if all that was very coherent. No, Andrew, it's, but, co- it's coherent. Um, but I think that, um, I, I, I am in a ton of debt, but I think that's 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 the way it goes. Yeah, in I, our I don't society. think you can do it. I don't think you can do much. No, without um, that. Unless you're independently wealthy, and <laughs> that's not really a risk. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm really fortunate, I think, to have people that believe in me yeah. and people, wonderful you know, connections and community and friends and family that do support me. And um, so I'm, I'm really... Um, grateful in that sense of having like strong support strong social support um and tons of people that are beside me you know fighting for the same things and yeah supporting each other I think there's something that I'm hearing you say is also a (laughs) I'm not gonna have you be my therapist right now but (laughs) it got to me is like one of the things that I try not to you can cry. I know, but then it's really hard for me to get it under control <laughs> and talk. Just talk to uh, my sibling, Jessica, the same way. It's that you are able to recognize the community around you yeah. and utilize each other. Yeah. And I think one of my flaws still, and I think it's rooted in child. I know it's rooted in childhood trauma. Yeah. And it's that love piece is when you're not sure if you're loved, then you're always doubting the love of other people. Absolutely. So that's really, I'm going to think about that because because I see my community Mm -hmm. and my community is super, super supportive, but because my abandonment happened in my Mm thirties when I came out about Mm -hmm. my abuse, it changed it's like my dna i mean my dna was all already you know doing Mm -hmm. so much work to not remember yeah but then something shifts and you're like oh the thing that parents aren't supposed to do they did right so i'm aware of it but when you said that i was like that's some work i need to do on i oh i know that i'll be working on trust for the rest of my life but just allowing people to help me yeah and I had to ask for a lot of help to make Just this happen. Hard. I had to. Yeah. I had um, four or five weekends of full um, 
work parties here with everybody from my community showing up, you know, and, um, but I want to say that I'm not, I'm not perfect in that connection piece. I can be guarded too at times. Um, um, I can be a tough cookie, you know, and while I super value connection, radical support of each other, um, you know, it's, it's hard to be vulnerable sometimes, right? And it's hard to ask for things. It's hard for me to ask for things. Um, coming from Southwestern PA, like I, I sometimes want someone to bring me a casserole. I'm like, (laughs) yeah, can you knock on the door, you know, and bring me tuna? Yeah. I mean, I'm vegan, so I've been vegan for a long time. So maybe like, maybe just like some macaroni and cheese, you know, but, um, it's hard to ask for things like that. And so I appreciate your vulnerability and letting that, that connection piece touch you. And it's hard. It's really hard. It's hard. And we yeah. all have wounds. And I think that, so it's hard. It's hard yeah. to keep going. And I think that you and I will both be working on our trauma the rest of our lives. Yes. Like I can speak yeah. for myself and oh, say, I will. That, <laughs> say that, you know, while maybe the trauma processing is done, um, the patterns yeah. that come with it are, um, they take a lifetime to yeah. break down. And I think that that is really valuable and important work mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm glad to be out here in yeah. the community doing it with you Andy Me too thank you do you want to plug anything before we go um, I do want you to say you haven't said the name of it oh Keystone Commons oh yeah you website did website is keystonecommonspdx.com and if anyone out here listening is a grassroots group a nonprofit group or you know even another professional who wants to hold a training or an yeah. event or a retreat or a meeting I'd love to have people um, here at Keystone to um, support their work yeah. and sort of lift up their work and advance their work. Um, and, you know, our list of counselors is also on the website yeah. if people are looking for a more radical approach to counseling. A lot of our folks here, um, you know, we're queer, we're trans, yeah. um, POC folks, and people who are, who are not just calling in the status quo. You know, people who are working really hard to to show up in that authentic space Mm -hmm. as a counselor. And, um, yeah, I just, yeah, thank you. Are you taking clients? No, I'm full. That's a good good problem to have. (laughs) Well, I do a lot of different things. Yeah. But but I think that... um, there's there's a there's a lot of good people working in this community so and and i trust you i think thank you angie you wouldn't have people that thank you thank you thank you thank you you for giving me your time it's a sunday it's a sunday Sunday. we're hanging out yeah and i hope it was i hope it was valuable so good i mean you got me to cry (laughs) and you didn't even try (laughs) i didn't try that's for sure thank you thanks whoo I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I enjoyed making it and getting to have that conversation with Karen. Especially looking back on it today, I am in my second week of pretty close to isolation. We we have been hunkered down for two weeks as a family in our house. Um, I've been taking walks every day with the dogs really paying attention to my mental health. And one of the things that came up for me in that episode was the reminder of compassion fatigue. And if you don't know what compassion fatigue is, I strongly recommend that you look it up because I my definition isn't probably going to do it justice. But 
Compassion fatigue is people that work in help fields. You know, like Karen, mental health, mental health fields, um, family therapists, psychotherapists, um, spiritual directors, nurses, you know, people in the health fields that are holding space for other people and other people's emotional needs and how that can become fatiguing if you don't put in practices that help you kind of let that stuff go. So it's like somatic healing. So if we are holding not only our own trauma, but the trauma of others in our bodies, and we're not finding ways to let those things go, it can be very taxing on us. And so that is compassion fatigue. I'm sure ministers have it that are, especially ministers that have very vulnerable congregations, rabbis, um, imams, you name it, people holding space for other people. So while I was listening to Karen talk today, I realized that that is happening to me in this time. Everything that I'm doing has been centered around how are my people doing? The people that I reach out to, my clients, people online, my my online community, people that I feel a connection. And I wouldn't use the word responsibility, but um, a deep empathy for. And it made me think that in me, kind of that's upped. Like I'm feeling... And I wasn't able to put my finger on it until I was listening to this, but I am feeling kind of like I need a break from from it. Now, I want to clarify, nobody's putting anything on me. They're not making me hold their emotions. They're not telling me their stuff without me providing the space or asking or whatever. It's my own stuff. It's my own job. It's my vocation, and it's also my personality. So I just reminded myself, okay, I'm feeling a little overwhelmed by all of the stuff that's going on in my my community that's closest to me, my family unit, my friend unit, and my extended unit. And I acknowledge that while at the same time going... I need to create space for me to kind of let that go. So while I was walking, I just tried to do a practice of letting that go. People aren't asking me to be responsible for their emotions, but sometimes unless we stop ourselves and go, okay, I'm feeling this and nobody's asking me to feel this, but I'm going to, I'm going to try to kind of let that go. It's, doubled and tripled for me in this time because I'm at home. And so I'm online, I'm interacting with clients, I'm holding a lot of weight right now, and it and it just was good for me to notice. I also want to say to you, I think the same ha- can happen to parents. And I would like to specify, oftentimes, it is it acutely affects women because typically in our culture, women have been put in the roles of caregiver. And so 
they end up holding a lot of the emotional well-being in the family. You know, their partner, if their partner is a male, maybe that person hasn't really been taught to hold that or doesn't know how or kind of um, (laughs) puts that on the other person. So I want to speak especially to women that If you are home, if you are working from home, you feel like you're holding your partner's emotional well-being, you're holding your children's emotional well-being, you're holding your own emotional well-being, your extended family's emotional well-being, or just emotions, that can be very taxing for you, and that could easily lead to compassion fatigue. So just a side note of please take the time to kind of I think I talked about this a little bit last week, like to just step out. If that means you're stepping out by getting in the shower and saying, okay, you've got the kids right now, or I'm going to be whoever, I'm going to be out for 15 minutes, I'm going to be taking a shower. And then you use that time. Or you, (laughs) if you can, you come in your bedroom and you lock your door and you take a nap or you do a meditation It is so important that we have the stamina, the emotional stamina to ride out what we're in right now. And and that doesn't mean you've got superhuman emotional strength. It just means you're acknowledging, you're noticing when you might be overwhelmed and you're doing whatever it takes to help yourself de-stress and self-care. So I hope that you can do that. I'll talk more maybe next week on how to deal with compassion fatigue, if that's what you're experiencing. If not, I still am really excited to know what you're doing to kind of weather this or how you're struggling. If you want to, I started a Facebook group. It's private. It's called Emotional Prepping. For COVID-19 and in that group we're talking about best practices, helps, and what's happening. It's not it's a group that there is not advising unless you want advice. For the most part, it's just how are you coping? How are you surviving? What are you doing? Because what you're doing may be a ticket to somebody else, a ticket of freedom, if you will, for somebody else. You know, maybe they hadn't thought about you know, I don't know, (laughs) cleaning their cupboards. That doesn't sound emotionally freeing to me, but to somebody else, cleaning something at May, or maybe they hadn't thought, oh, I'm going to do yoga, or there's this free thing online, or here's all these tools that people have been posting that could help you, like, give your kids the emotional care, and you don't have to be the sole giver of that. So I just... I hope that you're well. I hope that you're taking care of yourself. I hope that you know you are worth loving. You are worth knowing. You are worth being in this world. You are worth knowing. You are worth loving. You are worth being in this world. Remember who you are. Thanks for listening.